3: the volume no! oh my god how could he do that
2: are you donate on donate what? To cha- what charles darwin the nerves is where it's at
4: Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson and alongside me is Logan Camden, and in this new year, we have lots of awesome basketball to talk about with you all, starting with a relatively big trade to come in the mid-season stretch pre-deadline, that being the New York Knicks acquiring OG Ananobi along with Precious Achua and Malachi Flynn in exchange for... For RJ Barrett, Emmanuel Quickly, and a 2024 second rounder going back to the Toronto Raptors. Logan, you're wearing a Knicks jersey there, but you're not a Knicks fan. You're just a huge Emmanuel Quickly enthusiast. So, what is your take on this for New York, giving up IQ, but getting back a potential win-now contributor like OG?
1: I think this is a really mutually beneficial trade on both sides, Carson. And you think about what the Knicks were likely going to do this offseason... Uh, Emmanuel quickly probably not going to get re-signed just would probably command a little too much money for the Knicks pockets and then uh, with RJ you know just kind of stuck and what I mean by that is RJ was a guy that I always felt like needed a lot of room and time to go out there and make mistakes and develop you know there's young guys that are really ready to go out there and lead a team and there's other guys that are kind of raw and need time to develop and I think RJ has grown as a complimentary player but you know, as the guy that maybe we envisioned him out of the draft, I think he really needs to be in a little bit more of an on-ball role where he can, you know, create a little more and grow his game and develop. So, I think for the guys they lost, I don't think they're huge for New York. Uh, getting back a piece like OG Ananobi is huge. I think what it does for their lineups um, defensively, like you think of a guy alongside Jalen Brunson being able to lean on Josh Harden, and OG Ananobi defensively in those lineups uh, for rebounding purposes like you know, outside of Jalen Brunson, the Knicks are really physical. They're really big. And OG Ananobi is just a defensive game record. Carson. I think he's a really good complementary off-ball guy offensively in terms of what he's going to do, catch and shooting. Uh, you know, and he doesn't need the ball in his hands. He's a completely off-ball guy where he's just, you know, he can really just play catch and shoot. Defensively, though, I mean, this is probably a guy that Tibbs would make in a lab. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is a guy that Tibbs probably dreams about. Uh an electric motor, a defensive wrecker, a a defensive playmaker, man. Um, any given night, he can take on the opposing team's best wing player. Uh, again, and then you've got guys like Josh Hart who can take on that second assignment. Um, he's a. I think we saw. I saw one play um, in the debut game where OG makes this weak side rotation and is a uh, you know help side rim protector. He's got a nine foot standing reach. He's got a seven foot two wingspan. Like. O. G. is a is a really um he's one of the best defensive players in all the NBA. I don't have to dress it up. You know, he's just mm-hmm. he just makes defensive plays. So I think for a Knicks team that is defensive minded, this is a big part of their culture, this is what Tibbs wants to do, I think it's a good get. Um Value-wise, you know, I don't love it for New York. I'm really high on RJ and IQ. Like, I love those guys as young talents. I think that Toronto, in terms of what they got back, you know, we can talk about draft compensation, how they wanted all these first-round picks. I think getting two really good players is a lot more valuable than going out and getting a bunch of draft picks. So Mm -hmm. I I think it is mutually beneficial, Carson, but I lean that I think Toronto won this one just slightly.
4: Toronto got a great haul back. I did not expect for them to get this sort of value out of OG when he is expiring mm-hmm. this year. I do think that this move makes the Knicks, certainly their starting lineup better. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of key needs that OG does address. First of all, they needed to raise their defensive ceiling because you talk Mm -hmm. about how Tibbs likes leading out these defensive-minded teams, and that's what they were a few years ago under him. But these last couple years, they've regressed there. They were 19th in defensive rating last season, 21st up to this point this year. Now they have an elite wing defender, a guy who can guard multiple positions, like you mentioned, bring some value as an interior defender. He's very, very strong for a wing, and he does have that length. You add even more size. This is a Knicks team that we know is huge in the front court now with OG and Randall, Mitchell Robinson hurt, but you still have Hartenstein, who's a really big physical seven-footer. And overall, OG is just much better at the sort of role-player stuff that they have mm-hmm. been asking RJ to do. Knock down jumpers as a catch-and-shooter. OG's significantly better there. Defend at a really high level. OG's better there. He brings more size. And they do get off of the RJ contract, which I think at this point they're probably viewing as more of a burden. It's not that it's an obscene number, but is RJ the sort of guy who three years from now you want to be paying $30 million? Probably not with some of the issues that we have seen from him in terms of his offensive skill development. When you're in a situation like the Knicks, where you have two stars you believe in, you're trying to create a title window, a guy of that caliber on that contract can hold you back. And they weren't going to pay IQ, it seemed, They do have to pay OG now anyways. I think that he's going to demand at least as much in this same offseason. So from that perspective, it's not like it's a huge money-saving move. But I don't think they were ever in a position to make the most of IQ's skill set. Because he was always going to be behind Jalen Brunson. You can't start those two together. You can't have the two small defensively limited guards. IQ is a better defender than Brunson. He's bigger than Brunson. But still, the fundamental issue remains... And so he was always going to be sort of relegated to that sixth man role where he's really good. But are you getting the most out of a player of that talent level? Probably not. And it didn't seem like they were going to make him a real part of their future plans because of that. So I do definitely like what OG brings as a high level role player in that 3 and D mold. My concern is just in a playoff setting do you miss that additional shot creation from IQ? And by the way, the fact that he has consistently made that second unit a group that is way outscoring the opposition, like the Knicks have always been at their best when IQ was on the floor and overall when their bench is out there, that's a significant part of what makes them so good. Now you are losing the most significant part of that equation and you are losing another scoring threat in RJ. It's not that he's a perfect player, but he was pretty good in the playoffs last year. And he is at least another guy who can really put the ball on the floor, who is athletic, who has these shooting streaks at the very least. And now you've subtracted a couple of guys who do have some of that ball handling and shot creation ability, and you are really, really relying On your two stars, creating shot after shot after shot. And Jalen Brunson, I am 100% good with in that role. (laughs) Julius Randle just concerns me with how erratic he is as a shot maker, with how he can crumble as a decision maker. I just think we've seen it. Too many times in the playoffs already, that regression is almost unparalleled. And it's not that he's gonna be that bad every time, but he's not somebody I believe in holding up his regular season level over multiple playoff runs, where he's already erratic because he relies on this really tough shot making as a pull-up shooter, and he's inconsistent there. Very inconsistent. So, ultimately, I think their starting five is better with OG. I'm not sure this is a real needle mover for me from New York's perspective.
1: I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. The Uh, Randall, the Randall comments? The the Julius Randall, there's always, I mean, I was going to add it if you didn't, you know what I mean? Julius Randall is quite possibly my least favorite player to watch in all of the NBA. And it's frustrating because a good Randall Knight, oh boy, you're in for a show, Mm -hmm. man. Six knockdown pull-up threes. He's a bowling ball getting to the rack. You know, he's weaponizing his physical advantages. He's getting to the hole. And then you get one of them bad Randall Knights and it's, I'm going to miss nine pull-up mid-range jump shots. I'm going to stop giving effort defensively and on the glass and I'm just going to completely unplug. I'm not fond of Julius Randall. I do want to add a a couple other things on the Quickly point and on the Knicks as a whole before we move on to Toronto's side of things. I think you are exactly right with Emmanuel Quickly. I have always seen a higher ceiling with Quickly, if he could get more PT, uh, Mm -hmm. with how great he is as a catch-and-shooter. There's... Something that I really like, and I don't know if you can say this is a blanket statement for all Kentucky guards, but I like how the majority of Kentucky guards are really good off-ball and on-ball. Like, quickly gives you value, yes, is that ball handler, but he's not a guy that needs it in his hands. He relocates off-ball. He is a deadly catch and shooter. He not only shoots with range off the catch, he can do it off of the dribble. Like, mm-hmm. guys with this kind of insane touch, I just feel like with the ball in his hands, is going to do more in Toronto. That being said... You do note that RJ and Quickly out uh, provides more offensive opportunity, uh, more ball handling opportunities for other guys. And this is a team that, while you're losing scoring punch, you do have other guys that you can turn to in this guard rotation. And that's what I want to ask you about, Carson. With Quickly and Barrett's departure, what do you think of these guys and what do you think it means for the likes of uh, Deuce McBride off of the bench? uh, Some of these other guys on the margins for the Knicks, What do you think about those guys, and what do you think it means for them and their impact on this rotation moving forward?
4: I'm not sure that it means all that much in terms of them, like, stepping up and taking on additional Mm -hmm. ball handling responsibilities. Like, maybe you need Deuce McBride to step up a bit with that second unit, but he's barely been playing. Like, I'm not sure that he's the guy who's going to fill the void, and I think that Dante is very content in his role right now, bringing you a little bit of ball handling and playmaking, but mostly just being a guy who plays well away from the ball, he's shooting the hell out of it, makes some of those effort plays. Like They've put together a lot of wings who aren't necessarily guys who want to be ball handling and creating. They're going to shoot, they're going to defend, they're going to rebound. So I don't think that there is somebody on this roster who steps up and fills the void that IQ leaves behind, even a fraction
1: of it, really. And I don't mention Quentin Grimes either. Quentin Grimes is nice too. Hasn't been shooting the ball as well this season. I think you're right. Let me ask you one final question of this from the Knicks perspective then. Mm-hmm. Would you have pulled the trigger on this trade if you were New York?
4: I honestly think that depends on how they move forward from here. Right now, this feels like a lot of value to give up for OG when you are going to have to pay him in this offseason, anyways. However, he fits more intuitively here as a piece who you want on a contender. A guy in that mold, the really high level 3 and D player, is just probably more valuable than a flawed, inconsistent guy like RJ, or even then a really high level 6 man, which is what IQ is kind of destined to be in New York. So if they parlay this into another quality move, if they build off of it and they say, okay, well now we've moved off of the RJ contract, and they're able to make some sort of package where they add a relatively dynamic shot creator. Somebody else who fills a valuable role in a team that is trying to take a level up, then yeah, I think so because I think the OG move will have enabled them to do that and I think that he fits really well on a team that is trying to get into those upper echelon conversations. So it's going to depend on that. But for the Raptors, I think this is a great haul. I agree with you that they won this trade if there is a winner. What are your thoughts on what they got back here?
1: Well, we can start with IQ, the gentleman whose uh, jersey I'm rocking. Yeah. I, I, I've I've loved Emmanuel quickly for a while, and it started with that. Oh wow, that floater, man! That the, the float game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really ecstatic at the opportunity that Emmanuel quickly is going to have in Toronto, and I think it addresses a pretty big need for the Raptors as well. I mean, they just are, are at a complete lack of half court guard creation and talent. And I thought you saw that from the jump, like yeah. I think quickly's probably the best guard that they have on their entire roster today. Totally. Uh, and he just brings so much in terms of, like I said, on-ball and off-ball shooting. I love the way the ball moved around. And this is a dynamic that I didn't really see with Quickly when he entered the league. I thought that he was a six-man. I thought he was a two-guard that wasn't ever really going to be able to defend. He was just a, a bucket-getter. I think Quickly might... And, again, we're going to see with time here in Toronto because he is going to have the ball in his hands a lot. I mean, I think we might be looking at a a point guard. You know, I think Quickly might have point guard chops in terms of playmaking, decision-making. He's unselfish with the ball. He can run, pick, and roll. And I'm not talking about a high-level, Brunson-level point guard, but I think he's got enough chops where he can can playmake and he can run this offense a little bit. And, again, for a Toronto team that is abysmal in the half court, that needed shooting, that needed ball handling, that just needed – any creation at all i mean they they hit a home run quickly is a a a top-notch guard in that regard and then with barrett i'm not as sold on rj just because I, i don't really know what rj is at his max you know you talk about og we know what og is he's one of the best role players that you can get he's one of the best glue guys rj has gotten better in those areas as a defender as a shooter and he's been great this is probably the best year of rj's career uh this season I just don't know what his high end, I don't know what his role looks like when he's maximized. You know what I mean? I don't know if he's a complimentary guy. I don't know if he's a guy that you really want on ball, running your offense. You know, he doesn't really have the ball handling or playmaking chops to kind of take that. I think this is going to be more about RJ finding his role for the future, if that is as an on-ball guy or an off-ball guy, and just kind of finding his footing. But that's why I like this trade for Toronto, Carson. We've been saying it for three years. They've picked a direction. They've gotten three young guys that you can at least buy in and invest in for the next couple of years, and I think that they fit well enough together. Quickly is a one or two. Barnes is the four. RJ is the three. Let's rock with it. Let's see if it works. Let's see what happens. Uh, Toronto got younger, and they picked a direction, and they got a really good young guy that I believe in in Emmanuel Quickly. So that's why I think they won this trade.
4: Totally with you there, and obviously we've heard some of the hilarious packages that Masai was apparently demanding for OG, four first-round picks, the crazy stuff that he was asking for from the Warriors, but in terms of realistic outcomes, you were not going to retain OG this offseason. You were not going to re-sign him, so this is an awesome haul, and you hit on a lot of the key points. This is a team that is as starved for backcourt skill and shot-making as anybody in the NBA, I think IQ is immediately their best guard in a real future asset. I think that he does fit in multiple different backcourt looks because of his ability to play on and off ball. He is a really good spot-up guy, but he has been incredibly efficient as a pick-and-roll scorer this year. 98th percentile there, Logan, on high volume. So good as a pull-up shooter. Awesome floater touch, just a generally crafty scorer who the Knicks have always been way better with him on the floor. So that alone is a big win, in my opinion. Getting back a young player of that caliber in a mm-hmm. mold that you need for OG who was going to walk. And I'm not super high on RJ, just because I think there are certain limitations with him that it's tough to overcome. Like, the dude is just completely lacking in touch. He has been one of the worst <laughs> intermediate and touch shot makers in the league consistently and out of pick and roll he's not the sort of crazy athlete to where he just gets to the rim at will so he has to rely on those shots and he pretty much just bricks them for the most part and he got off to this flaming hot shooting start from deep this year and now has just cooled all the way down back to like 33 percent so the below average shooter really bad touch that's a bit of a struggle to overcome if you want that guy to reach any sort of star mold but he is still a good athlete he is still a plus defender when engaged I thought that he was good in the playoff run last year. Like he's a talented guy and the contract isn't good, but Toronto's not in a place where that really matters to me. Plus he's Canadian. It's his homecoming. (laughs) I genuinely think that the fans will love that. So they actually have direction now. They have exciting young pieces and Scotty is hooping. He is your cornerstone. I think IQ is a real complimentary piece long-term. And even if RJ isn't, That's okay. You've started a new timeline. That's a positive in and of itself. And if they move Spicy P, then they will officially be free of basketball purgatory where they have been for these last couple years. And... We've been saying that that needs to happen. The thing that finally got them there, Logan, was losing to the Detroit Pistons, which many <laughs> thought could never happen to anyone after they lost 28 straight. But the man who sunk them, Logan, Kate Cunningham, has been playing some really good basketball as of late, except for last game, he sucked. But overall, he's been hooping. This is a man who was subjected to a lot of slander for the Pistons' struggles. I would say mostly wrongfully so. And I think we're now at an interesting place, Logan, where we can have a conversation between him and the number one pick the year after him, Paolo Boncaro. Who would you rather build around between those two?
1: It's a really tough question, Carson. I think I'm going to go with Cade. And the reason I say that is I just think there's a different level of, you know, easy offense that Cade is going to create for me versus Paolo. And I do think Paolo has other advantages, like Uh, in terms of being able to shoot over, you know, the majority of the league, being 6'10", being able to be this agile of an athlete and to create jumpers. Like, when Paolo's on, he looks Tatum smooth. You know, he looks Tatum light almost with his size and how easy he gets into his shots. He's really strong. He's really physical. Uh, He can get to the rim at will. But... And you know, I think he's—I think he can take on bigger defensive matchups. He's a better rebounder, right? Like Paolo has all of these advantages, but to me, Cade is just—you know—I think Cade's just in more of that star guard role that I can buy into. That's going to be successful in a playoff run, and I, I know that that's. Uh, Kind of a hot take. It's like me defending the Chiefs this entire time. I also want to sure. redact that statement, man. I don't believe in the Bills more than the Chiefs. I was on one last episode, man. Wow, That's just redaction, a, official redaction, dude. It's just a, it's just the wrong take. I literally, bro I walked sat around in bed like, at night and he thought about that. Yes, one. <laughs> yes, dude. I sat up at night and I went, I don't actually believe that statement whatsoever. Uh, I want to redact that on this pod. Chiefs Redacted. touchdown, redaction. touchdown Chiefs. Cade, I, I just. You know, it's it's like me taking up for the Chiefs. I just think with this bad run from the Pistons, a lot of people want to attribute, like the star quarterback and teams going on a losing streak. Oh, Justin Herbert sucks. He's not a top-five quarterback. Oh, Cade Cunningham just lost all these games. It's always important to contextualize that these are team sports. And for people that are really high on Paolo, maybe this is justification that he's the better prospect because the Magic are on a run. Well, the Magic are just... Much better constructed top to bottom around Paolo. They have better basketball players. Jalen Suggs, Cole Anthony, Franz Wagner, Wendell Carter Jr. The Pistons don't. Uh, I think that this is kind of the trial and tribulation of Cade. I think this is the season from hell that is going to mold him into the player that he is for the future. Where you got to lose a bunch of games and you got to grow your craft and you got to eat crow for a while before you start winning games. But I think this push through the fire is going to get Cade to where he needs to be. Or he is elite creating as a mid-range shooter out of pick and roll. Like, Cade has his own limitations, Carson, and you've harped on them in the past. He's not a great athlete, right? Mm -hmm. He's never going to be able to get to the rim at will and create crazy offense like that. But he's a genius passer. He processes the game exceptionally well. He's got great feel and change of pace. And I think he's going to be one of the deadliest mid-range and intermediate shot creators in the NBA one day, combined with an elite playmaker. So I think... Top 10 point guard status is where I envision Cade reaching one day with plus defense too. And yeah, potentially higher. The only reason I say top 10 is there is so much great guard talent in the league today. For him to climb into that upper echelon, he's going to have to be truly elite. I just think that archetype is a little more valuable than Paolo. And I don't know if I can trust Paolo to concretely lead out great offenses. I think Cade is going to consistently lead out great offenses one day. And I don't know if Paolo does. I think Paolo has a more well-rounded game, but I would rather take that top-notch offensive creation than a well-rounded superstar. It's tough. It's tough. I would take both of these guys as building blocks. I want to be clear about that. If I could have either of these guys as my franchise cornerstone, I'd be happy, but I just slightly prefer Cade.
4: It's very, very close for me as well, and I look back to when we did our top 10 guys 25 and under to build around this offseason. I had Paolo one spot above Cade then, And I'm going to stick with that now. And it's interesting to me that you said off the top that you feel like Cade gives you more easy offense. Because that's where I have to disagree. I think that the easiest way to generate quote-unquote easy offense is by having overwhelming physical advantages. That is something that Paolo has. That is something Mm -hmm. that Cade does not. Cade has to grind for a lot of his buckets. He is very reliant on difficult shot making. You just don't really see dudes like Paolo who are that size, 6'10", 250, that athletic where you're talking about real high-end first step, but also strong, also bouncy around the rim, who can handle, who can shoot, even if it's inconsistent, you certainly see the flashes and the improvement, who can play make? again, some inconsistencies there, but damn good for a second-year player with those physical attributes, that is rare. That is very, very rare. He is a constant mismatch. He pretty much can either get by you or go through you, regardless of who you are. The first step is quick, but then he's also got some nice counters, some nice ways to create separation in the lane. Awesome spin move. And then he does have those physical tools finishing around the rim in traffic. Just creates a bunch of rim pressure. And I've always said that I think he's very versatile in terms of his uses. He is sort Mm -hmm. of this wing-big hybrid. He can bully mismatches out of the post, but he can also run pick and roll for you. I think if they add a really high-end pick and roll ball handler and he's willing to embrace it, we could see him become a lethal Mm -hmm. pick and roll finisher and pick and pop guy. He's awesome in transition. There's just a multitude of uses for a guy with all of his skills and physical tools. He has improved as a shooter as well. He was under 30% from deep last year. He's 36% deep this year. Still inefficient for mid-range, but I do like the looks that he gets there. I think he does a nice job of using his physicality to create space. He's got good balance, good body control. I think he can be a bit overly reliant on that still, but I think it's going to be a weapon for him down the line. And as a playmaker, for his size, he's got good vision, good instincts, We see it with kickouts, with skip passes, like he's very willing to lean into the drive and kick stuff. Unfortunately, the Magic's shooting still sucks. They're 29th in three-point percentage, so they don't reward him all that much, but he'll create those shots, and then he's got some nice synergy with Golga when he draws help from his man and he can just hit him with those laydowns. He's not crazy accurate as a passer, he can telegraph stuff a bit, but he's unselfish, and he's a second year 6'10 dude who is averaging almost 5 assists per game, could be averaging a little bit more if he had decent shooting around him. And then he does have the two way tools, his defensive effort can come and go, I think he can be late on rotations, I think he can take bad angles in terms of closeouts, but the tools are all there, and he is contributing right now to a top three defense in the league. That is uncommon for a second year guy. His shot selection can be bad, it can be frustrating. He's not super efficient, but neither is Cade. Honestly, all of those same things apply to Cade. The only difference is that Cade, you can probably attribute more to actual physical limitations. He can't just get to the rim at will in the same way that Paolo. And when Paolo fully realizes and embraces that, there's a ceiling for him to be all the more dominant offensively. So it's the overwhelming athletic advantages and how that leads to easy offense. And if he starts really shooting at a really high clip where he's already progressing, and again, he is fluid there. He's a nice shot creator. He can hit his step backs and his turnarounds and all that. And if he becomes really sharp playmaking where he's already embracing the ball handling and taking on those responsibilities, good Lord. I mean, that is just like a dude with really rare traits. And people like to hint at these LeBron comparisons with Paolo, but they never say it outright. Have you seen that on Twitter? There will be like some Paolo dunk and people are like, we all know who that looked like, but I'm not going to say it. I saw somebody tweet out recently, like Paolo could be averaging 23.77, which he's not. And he couldn't really be, but as a second year guy, and then we all know who that sounds like. It's like, settle down. Okay just calm down a little bit, but he does have that special blend of elite athleticism and offensive skill and the playmaking chops. Cade is hooping as of late though. I mean, his last eight games, he's 28 points in eight assists per game on 52, 40, 84 splits. I just love that. He is knocking down his jumpers at an elite clip because that's always been the thing with him. It's the pull-up shooting at his size and He struggled to shoot as a rookie, a lot of guys do, he struggled to shoot in the limited sample size last year, and he was struggling to shoot early this year, and that is partly due to shot diet and terrible spacing, but I always felt like he could shoot better than he was, and now he is knocking him down, and then he's using his size, and he's using the fact that he plays with great pace, and he isn't sped up, and he can change gears to get to his spots, and he is playmaking really well. I did a whole video about Kate earlier this year. I love the guy, and when he cares, he has a high two-way ceiling hasn't really tapped into it this year but I believe that the tools are there I think that we've seen it on film when he is engaged he's got really good length he moves his feet really well he's strong for a wing and a guard so I think he's probably better built to singularly carry an offense just because he is in that archetype of that ball dominant guard who can run 15 pick and rolls a game for you and is gonna make the right decision right Like, he will hit the roller, he will kick out to a shooter, he can consistently make the right reads in those situations. But I think that Paolo probably pairs more easily with another really good player who needs the ball, because he can be that off-ball play finisher, because he can attack you in so many different ways. I think that, and the other things that I talk about, make me slightly prefer him. But, if you're slandering Cade because the Pistons suck, that is just misplaced criticism, He has been their shining light. He has been really, really good. And I still
1: deeply believe in him as a future star guard. And that's a big component of it for me, Carson, is the magic. uh, I don't know, just kind of in late game scenarios. And like you said, if you get another guard for Paolo where he doesn't have to take on that role, uh, it will be better. And Paolo's impact, just point blank, is more multifaceted than Cade. Mm. You hit on the key thing for me with Paolo, though. And I guess why I'm not... I won't say skeptical because I do expect him to improve. If Paolo can get to like a 39% or above clip from behind the arc, mm-hmm. or if he can get to like 45% out of the mid-range, because like you said, Paolo is still really damn a really damn fluid athlete for a guy his yeah. size, and that's why I make the Tatum comparison. If Paolo starts consistently knocking down that jumper, I, I think I'd have to change my mind. That's the only difference for me right now is that the, old, the the playmaking and the shooting edge, just because I think Cade, like I said, is going to create more seamless, easy offense. But if, if Paolo reaches that, man, you're looking at a guy that has all of those physical traits, that has some playmaking chops, but is also going to have an unblockable perimeter jump shot, which just makes him a really complete player. That's the one thing that I want to see before I can, you know, really say that i take Paolo.
4: Here's what I'll say about you making the Tatum comparisons. Paolo at just barely 21, has two inches on Jason Tatum today, and he has 40 pounds on Jason Tatum today. Like, that's what I want to emphasize. Paolo is a freight train, bro, yes. 40? 40 pounds, at least on how they're listed. How
1: much, how much does Tatum weigh?
4: They have him listed at 210, which seems a little bit slight oh, I'm given the nah, muscle that he's added.
1: Tatum's for sure 235, 240. Yeah, big
4: boy. I'm probably closer to that, but they don't generally sell dudes that short, well, especially yeah, man, when the I... whole thing is he added strength this offseason and all that. But I agree, 210 definitely seems slight, but whatever. He's bigger, he's already, I would, I mean, he's just the bigger, more athletic guy long term. And so, in terms of just that pure physical imposition, he certainly has more upside. It's a rare archetype that Paolo is in right now. It's very, very exciting, but I do love both of these guys. You know I'm not loving right now, though, Logan? The Cleveland Cavaliers, who Mm. I think, boy, there have been times where I looked at this core and I thought, I mean, that is a really rare overall collection of young talent to have. And then it was a very disappointing exit in the playoffs last year. Now they're sitting at 18 and 15. What's wrong with the Cavs, Logan?
1: Rapid fire. I got some quick numbers that can Mm. summarize uh, the Cavaliers' issues really quick. Let's get into it. This season, 20th in offensive rating. They're 26th in clutch offensive rating. They're 25th in clutch true shooting. And there's just... It's just offense and shooting to me is what it comes down with with Cleveland to to start. There's not enough shooting down the roster and around their two ball dominant guards. They're 26 and three point percentage. Mitchell and Garland are both below 35 percent this season, and so top on top of there being not a ton of shooting, not a great complementary offensive fit, they just have a completely deficient bench as well. And what I mean by that is you know the Cavs went out and got a lot of guys that they thought could help them shoot the ball. That was kind of the goal of this offseason. You know, they bring back Dean Wade. They bring in Max Druse, uh, You hold on to guys like Harris Levert. That was a big thing that they struggled with last season. Well, the issue with a lot of that is those guys are really one-dimensional too. They can shoot, but they can't really defend. They can shoot, but they're not really great with the ball in their hands. They're really one-dimensional in terms that they're just catching and shooters and spacing guys. Uh, for me, for my ideal bench, I prefer guys that are really multifaceted. Okay, well, you can't shoot at a 40% clip. I don't care. Can you shoot at a 35% clip and defend and make timely plays and crash the glass? You Josh know, can you do the little?
4: We're always describing Josh Hart.
1: Yeah. Can you do the Bruce Brown stuff? Can you do the Josh Hart stuff? I want guys that are just going to do... Multiple things because I have star guys that can do that Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland are going to run my offense and operate and they're going to put up a lot of shots and they're going to get me They're going to generate 50 to 70 points on a nightly basis with points and assists. I got two big guys in the paint They're going to rebound. They're going to block shots and they're going to anchor the interior You know, I just think it's 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 a lot of puzzle pieces that look really good, but they don't really fit together So I think you need to overhaul the bench. I think you need to get a more complimentary starting five alongside your guys. And I don't know what that entails, Carson, because for a while, I do think one thing is certain. And it's something that you've said, I don't know, man, was it three years ago? We've been doing this show a long time, dude. Or two years ago, maybe. Maybe. They need to trade Jared Allen. I still think that is a concrete takeaway that they need to fully lean in to putting Mobley at the five. What is that going to do? Well, it's going to open up spacing where you can either get another four or another three that is more complementary to this offense. They can shoot, they can defend, they can play more on the perimeter, and you just let Mobley go on the interior. It's going to open up and I think make a lot of things more complementary for this team. Then I think it's you trade Levert because I just think that you have too much ball handling and perimeter shooting here and you either hold on to garland or mitchell or the other alternative is maybe you shop donovan mitchell and get a ton of value back and kind of hit reset and you lean into garland and mobley for your future what i'm saying is the bottom line is you need to completely retool this bench and you need to retool the starting five and i think the answer is dealing allen lavert and or donovan mitchell and i think that solves your issues i think it makes them a faster team a more complimentary team and also like i saw somebody say this on twitter like statistically carson isaac okoro is this team's best catch and shooter not typically where you want to be as a contending team like the Cavs are really damn talented but they don't have a ton of depth and their pieces just don't fit well together i would make a move at the deadline or If there's guys on the table that I like or I would completely retool this team in the offseason, it's a tough pill to swallow, but I think it's what the Cavs need to do.
4: Yeah, they definitely need to fundamentally change this roster construction, and they have this quote-unquote big four. Jared Allen has never really belonged in those conversations, but he made an all-star team, so he is, and I think they have a big four list of issues this year, okay? Four big issues. Number one is health. We've only seen all four of them together in 11 games this year, so obviously that plays a significant role in their struggles. But the second big issue is redundant roster construction, and to me, there's two fundamental issues there. They have put together two small guards who need the ball to be effective and can't defend, and they have paired them with two unskilled bigs offensively. When they first put this whole crew together, I thought, all right, they're blending really dynamic perimeter shot creators with dominant interior defenders that can work, but ultimately it can't because you have two guys who don't need to be respected offensively in the front court, and so teams can aggressively load up on those two perimeter shot creators, and then on the other side of the ball, you can attack those guys at the point of attack, and you can abuse them, and they're just constant liabilities. And regardless of how great your regular season defense can be, when you have pieces like that who can be exploited in a playoff setting, they will, and you won't be able to dominate on that side of the ball in the same way either. So, I think that ultimately this team desperately needs wings. And that was the case last year, and it turns out that bringing in George Yang and Max Struess aren't the home runs that you need to really reshape things. You talk about the potential for trading Mitchell... I think that this team long-term does need to choose one of the two guards and Mitchell seems like the one who isn't content. Maybe he is the one who you move off of and try to add an equally talented player on the wings where at least, even if it's not a guy who's defensively minded, even if it were say a Brandon Ingram, just a guy who is at least bigger and so can't be attacked in the same way. So you don't have those same issues piling on top of each other. And then... You also have to replace one of your unskilled bigs and it absolutely should be Jared Allen with a big forward who can defend and who ideally can just knock down an open catch and shoot three. Wings dictate the league these days. You have your star guards, you have your star bigs and everything in between, there's a lot of quality wings and the Cavs have no good ones. And that's just not a serious way to build a team that's trying to contend. And I will say... When it comes to the two unskilled bigs offensively, Mobley was always going to have to transition to the five long-term, I believe, as he just fills out more and becomes uh, more ready to defend fives full-time and all that. But in terms of it being so ugly right now, he absolutely bears responsibility, and I have been really disappointed in his lack of skill development. I love Devin Mobley. He was my favorite prospect in a draft class that I thought very highly of. I thought he was generational defensively. I thought he had tremendous offensive versatility and could do so many things at a high level. Was a solid jump shooter, had really nice playmaking chops, solid athlete, and he just hasn't been able to figure out any sort of go-to moves offensively. Uh, his jump shot has just been bad since he came into the league. In year 3, Logan, he is 2 of 10 from deep. Not taking threes. Doesn't make him when he does. Uh, He's 7 of 19 for mid-range. Again, barely takes those shots. Doesn't make him when he does. He is 34% in the paint outside the restricted area. He has not been the guy offensively that I expected him to be, that I helped him to be. And so he is holding the team back in that respect. But their depth is still bad. As I said, Struess and Yang don't make a difference. And neither of them are shooting well this year. They're both under 34% from deep. And when that's the case... I mean, really, what are you getting out of those guys? A couple of stout dudes? I mean, that's really all, all that they have in common. They're sort of boxy. Yeah, yeah, seriously. And then they are still playing. Or Coro and Dean Wade, a combined 48 minutes per game. Those dudes have 32 combined starts this year. So, it's exactly what you said, dude. Nobody checks the boxes on both sides of the ball. And right now, their shooting is just letting them down. They are a 27th percentile spot-up team. They're 26th and three-point percentage. And that's a real issue that we saw in the playoffs, where teams could totally dial in, send crazy help towards Garland and Mitchell, and there wasn't shooting to hold them accountable. Because the wings were unreliable, and then because you had the two bigs who were just bad for your spacing... And then the fourth big problem is just that nobody is playing well on this team. Garland, before he got hurt, was having a crazy down three-point shooting year. He was under 35%. This dude is an elite shooter. He was above 40% last year. He's always at least been up there. And he also just wasn't showing the same level of control over the game. The playmaking mastery that he had shown over the last couple years. He was 7.8 assists to 2.9 turnovers a game last year. This year, he's been 5.9 assists to 3.8 turnovers. So he hasn't been the same player that we're used to. And then the offense just isn't built to overcome his absence. So when he goes down, Donovan Mitchell's efficiency takes a hit everywhere because, again, now there's really no other skilled creators on the floor. And Max Drews does have to put a lot of shots up, and he's probably going to clank a lot of them. And then Mobley's stagnated. He's not playing well and Jared Allen is just Jared Allen, man. I mean, really, there's no room for growth with him. There's no room for him to step up and fill a void for others. people. He really just finishes finishes easy shots around the rim and protects the rim at a high level, grabs a lot of rebounds, but he just is who he is. So, they absolutely have to trade Allen, and I think that long-term, they have to trade one of the guards. Unfortunately, you're not going to get great value for Allen, probably. he He is still in a pretty replaceable mold, There was just one year that he was good enough at that to be rewarded with an all-star appearance, but nobody views him as an all-star level player. And then when it comes to the guards, like, those guys are both such great assets. You should be able to turn them into something that doesn't really hurt the talent level on your team too much. Like, I wouldn't want an all-picks package for these guys. I think that although you're really young, you're still a really good team, and you want an immediate star level player at least something close to that or maybe it is just a really quality wing and then you do get a lot of draft assets but it's just a redundant roster construction and they have the talent level to where they can move pieces around to try to correct that and hold on to a couple of these core guys and then hopefully create that actual title window but right now they just don't have complimentary enough players for that to be realistic
1: and we just talked about this one guy that got moved. He's been on, you know, trade rumors for years now. Uh OG Ananobi is kinda like the perfect, you know, wing Four. complimentary wing yeah. asset that yeah, that Cleveland needs. Uh their wing rotation has been horrible the past two years. And I don't know I don't know who that is, but I mean any serviceable guy on most teams I feel like is an upgrade for Cleveland. It's, like it's
4: so, so painful. That they just threw in Lowry Markkinen to the Mitchell deal. And it's not that yeah. he would have been what he is in Utah.
1: He's so much better than any of these bombs. Dude, like,
4: legitimately, when you consider the, the skill set redundancies between Mitchell and Garland, I would rather have one of those dudes and not the other one and then have Larry Markin in the front court because he does something different and valuable and then he brings size in the front court to where you can play him at the four and Mobley at the five and now you're just one move away potentially as opposed to right now where you're two moves away.
1: Yeah, but I still think that they can get a ton of value. I would, I'm on the fence of moving. Yeah, I'm on the side of moving Mitchell Allen and Karis Lavert, and building around Garland and Mobley. What about you?
4: I think I agree and it doesn't have to happen right now. And I think the healthy calves will be playing better, but if they want to really make the most of this group, then they do have to make serious change. College football fans, the championship is here and DraftKings Sportsbook is making sure you can throw down on the epic showdown for a shot at big bucks. New customers can score
1: 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting $5 on the championship game. Download the app now and use code nerds. New customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just five bucks on college football, only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code nerds. The crown is yours. restrictions Terms and responsible gaming resources. All right, so Logan, we
4: already had the conversation between Cade and Paolo about who would we want to build around going forward. There's a couple other young guys who are just a little bit older, a bit more experienced, and therefore are playing at a higher level, to where they're in a bit of a different conversation in terms of immediate impact. That is SGA and De'Aaron Fox, two guys who have just been unbelievable this year, who have been on heaters. SGA just played an mm-hmm. awesome game against the Celtics last night that grabbed him a lot of national attention. Between those two, Logan, would you have one of them first-team All-NBA right now?
1: Man, the, oh, the league is just so talented right now. League is talented. League is talented. Yeah, I I think I I want to put both of these guys, and again, Carson and I talk about this periodically, but it really is insane how absurdly talented the league is 10 years ago you Mm -hmm. had what eight maybe less like not even eight you had five guys averaging 30 points a game if you were lucky you know maybe whoa 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 no 10 years ago yeah you'd have have one yeah you'd have one win the scoring title you'd have five guys probably in between you know 26 and 30 that are you know chomping at the bit if you're lucky Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I might have to expand that to 25. It is absurd the amount of talent that we have in the league today and that there are guys who can just night to night go out and get you 30. Both of these guys are averaging over 30 points a game right now, and they both feel effectively unguardable. I I think I would at least have one. It's tough because you got to go Luka, right? Well, damn, I guess the question is would you put them above Luka or Steph? I guess right now, because the Warriors don't have the team record aspect, I probably would give the nod to SGA over Steph. I wouldn't take Steph over SGA. I want to be clear about that. SGA and Fox are probably in the next tier of guys that I would take, but it's ridiculous, man. Both of these guys feel effectively unguardable. And with the way that De'Aaron Fox is playing right now, there really isn't that big of a margin between... Those two guys, Fox 35-6 and six on 48-40, 72 splits with nearly two steals a game. Uh, these stats are courtesy of Jason Temp, friend of the show, host of Hoops Tonight. You guys should go check him out. Excellent basketball content, breakdowns, analysis every single day on his Twitter and on the YouTube page. Uh, Carson, he's shooting 10 three-pointers a game at a 45% clip over the last 11 games, and six of those threes are coming off of the dribble. He's shooting those at a 41% clip. On the year... Fox's touch has been impeccable he's shooting 50% on shots 5 to 9 feet he's shooting 50% on shots 10 to 14 feet he's shooting 44% overall on pull-ups and 40% on pull-up threes the shot creation and diet is absurd the step backs the floaters the fadeaways like De'Aaron Fox just has impeccable touch right now and when you think about a guy with this kind of skill set it crazy speed that you have to gauge for. That if you play up on him and respect these jump shots, he's gonna blow by you to the basket. If you give the slide guy, he's gonna find another guy on the other side and set him up for an easy bucket. If you don't, if you give him that cushion, guess what? He pumps the brakes and he hits a jump shot. It's insane. And then SGA on the other side. Uh, shout out another friend of the show, Jokic Joe Star. Great basketball content. Jokic Joe. T- Jokic Joe Star. Oh, it's Jover. It's Jover for me, man. It's so it's Jover. Jover. For you, bro. It's Jover. They're gonna cancel me. they're gonna cancel me respect you oh my gosh
4: you can't get caught up with the alliteration it's not real it's different pronunciations of the j it's joke it's it's
1: jover (laughs) great basketball content on twitter uh tiktok anywhere you get your basketball analysis you know he said he thinks sga is an mvp case and it's hard to disagree with that yeah thunder have won five straight they've won eight of nine he's had classic games against the celtics T-Wolves and Nuggets, two of those games were blowouts. And uh, you think about his skill set, too. You know, it's the change of pace. It's the ability to get to any of his spots at will any time that he wants to. It just seems like he doesn't miss mid-range touch shots. And he's entering the handful of guys, Carson, that I would want for an individual playoff run at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's why I think you have to consider the Oklahoma City Thunder already as legitimate contenders at this young uh, we talked about it with uh, on Jason's show that you know the Thunder kind of go against the grain. They go against the mold of a traditional contender. Uh, Jason noted that a lot of teams this young just can't compete. They don't have the veteran presences that you have on traditional contenders. I don't think that matters, man. I think SGA, Chet, and Jalen Williams are talented enough to where that doesn't matter at this point. And SGA leading the charge, Carson, I think he's right outside of the top-notch guys that I would take for a playoff run. It's Jokic, Curry, Luca, LeBron, and then I think I'm taking SGA, man. SGA is or, or Giannis is in there two Embiid. Yeah. But SGA is right there with those guys. He is a top ten guy I would want for a playoff run right now oh, no because doubt. he's effectively unstoppable. Like, Carson, he's twenty six to thirty two on post up shots this year, man. How do you defend this guy? He's six yeah. six and he's just unstoppable. I, I, I would probably have SGA as a first team All NBA guy over. Uh, Probably right there with Luca this year, man. And yeah, both of these guys are just they're insane, man.
4: Yeah, SGA is the dude who belongs on first team All NBA right now. He's been playing at a higher level than Steph. There's an argument that he's been playing at a higher level than Luca. This is mm, hilarious. Mm. I was going through all of his different play type efficiencies, bro. Pick and roll. Ball handler, 91st percentile. Transition, 88th percentile. ISO, 89th percentile. Post-up, 97th percentile. Miscellaneous, 98th percentile. Even when that bro is getting miscellaneous with it, you can't stop him. He's unbelievable. He is arguably the toughest dude in the league to stay in front of. Now, he doesn't have Foxy's straight line quickness acceleration, but I've never seen anyone shift gears like SGA does. It is unbelievable. And sometimes it literally looks like he's just driving right by people and you're like, whoa, they just look frozen. But it's because of the subtle little changes in pace, right? It's because of that hang dribble, lulls you, and then boom, he's by you. It's unbelievable. Like Luka has this tremendous change in pace, but he can't get to that same top gear when he decides to go like SGA does. And then He has so many counters, he has such elite footwork in the paint, the spins, the step throughs, we've talked about how great he is at using his physicality to create separation for his mid-range jumper, he has such great body control and balance, stepping back, I mean, he's just an artist in the paint, and he's a really skilled shot maker, and I hope this is the year that everybody fully appreciates SGA, because... There were so many dumb narratives about him in the offseason if it was that he hadn't done it in the playoffs because he was on a rebuilding team and he hadn't had the opportunity to do so there was nothing about his game that i would look at and say okay that doesn't translate and sure it's fair to some extent to say all right go out there and, and do it when defenses are keyed in on you trying to attack any little weakness dialed in on your tendencies That is a more challenging stage than the regular season for anybody, but to try to delegitimize his entire resume is silly. And I've seen people being like, wait until they sag off him in the playoffs. Okay. I mean, he's a 50% mid-range shooter. As you mentioned, he's a 97th percentile post-up scorer. He has a deep bag of tricks, man. Like, it's not like he is literally just capable of finishing around the rim. He does so much in that short and intermediate range as a skilled shot maker. People try to call him a foul merchant. And that's silly too. His free throw rate right now, that being the ratio of free throw attempts versus field goal attempts that he takes is 04 that is identical to John Morant. That is typical from a rim-pressuring guard. And that's what SGA does. He gets by you over and over again. He hits the paint over and over again. So, of course, he's going to get to the line a lot. I do not view him at all as a guy who is a foul grifter, a foul baiter. Last year, I mean, maybe there was a little bit of that. But even still, I think that he is a guy who authentically walks into 8-10 to 10 free throws a night because of his play style. And then versus Fox, I mean, he, he is just a better basketball player right now. I would give him a slight edge as a playmaker. Defensively, I think he has more of an impact. He has such great hands. He has awesome length. Uh, he's a really solid low man defensively. You'll see him in that role a good amount. He's a nice helper. He can affect people around the rim with his length. He's a solid rebounder. So if we're comparing him to Foxy, he's a bit bigger. He's the more dominant all-around paint force. He's getting all the way to the rim more than Foxy, and then he is the better overall like paint shot maker. Just how many ways that he can kill you there. And I think that he has the playmaking edge. I think that he has the defensive edge. And I think that he is an argument for the number two MVP case right now. Embiid to me is still clearly number one, but Jokic is just sort of deciding when he cares and when he doesn't this year. And that's not super compelling to me when you're talking about MVP. I mean, his impact is still insane. His numbers are still insane. He's still leading an elite team, but SGA is playing his ass off on both sides of the floor every single night. And he's giving you 32, 6 and 6 on 65% true shooting. I think he makes a better case right now. Luka, I think that both guys are playing awesome offensively. I would say Luka is playing slightly better basketball on that side of the ball, but then team success does matter in MVP cases. SGA is on a better team. His impact stats are unbelievable. Like the Thunder are, I think, 17 points per 100 possessions better when he is on the floor. Big edge versus Luka there. And he is playing at a much higher level defensively. So he's stamped in that top five. Giannis is also somewhere in that same range. But what he is doing as an all-around basketball player is undeniable right now. It is incredible. And I I think this guy's a top eight basketball player on the planet. I really do. I think that, yeah, the Tatum conversations, the book conversations are very interesting. I don't know if we have full time for them right now, but the margins there are slim. And I think SGA is playing the best basketball at this moment of any of them, for sure. I do want to give credit to Fox though, just because the jump shooting leap that you mentioned is insane. And if he is going to hit 40% of his threes on nine attempts per game, and if he's going to shoot 48% for mid range, which he did last year and he is this year, the guy's unguardable because he, he can get by you pretty much at will. And if you are going to have to try to play off of him because of that, and he can just walk into pull-up three after pull-up three and barbecue you that way, what can you do, man? I mean, the only prayer for the Warriors last year pretty much was that Foxy was missing his pull-up jumpers because he can just shift gear, right? You sell out so hard for the drive, and he just stepped back into an easy mid-range jumper. And uh, he's been unbelievable. He has been nails on those shots this year. 30 points per game on almost 60% true shooting. Ridiculous. By the way, Logan, Kentucky guards, both of these guys, come on, man. How do they do it? How do they do it? It is so disgusting. IQ, Tyrese Maxey, Tyler Jamal Murray, Hero. Devin Booker. What are they putting in the water there, bro? It's Eric, unbelievable. Eric
1: Bledsoe, and down. Aaron Harrison.
4: No, settle down, settle down. You ruined it. You ruined it. All right, Logan, I think we have to have the most important conversation of this show and things might get a little bit more serious and a bit more heavy here. Rick Carlisle said being historically great on offense is fun, but even dating a pretty girl gets boring after a while if she can't guard anybody. And I think this is a realization that all of us probably at some point have had to come to in our own ways. Is Rick Carlisle right, Logan? Are the Pacers too flawed defensively to be fun to date?
1: I think Rick Carlisle was, uh, uh, making a comparison, I think he was saying that the Pacers were boring in the sack. Oh, wow! <laughs> <laughs> How grass? <laughs> uh, essentially, though, yeah, I think that's what I think that's what Rick Carlisle was saying—that they were boring uh, in bed, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Rick Carlisle's right, man. There's just a just a just a time on it, man. If you're dating a boring chick, man, you know.
4: No, he didn't say a boring chick. No, he said she can't guard anybody, Logan. He said she's got no IQ. She's got no length to speak of. She's got no dog. He said that she bites on every upfake. She bites on every hezzy. He said that in a team context, she's got no concept of when to help. She doesn't close out hard. And so what are you going to do with that? You had a nice dinner. You had a nice time. You were laughing, and you stumbled into some local courts, and you said, hey, why don't we play a little? And she
1: couldn't stop anybody. And then you got her back, and she just lays there like a bump on a log. She just lays there, man. It's frustrating. I under—I sympathize with Rick Carlisle. I understand what he was alluding to. She also can't defend in the pick and roll, Carson. She's yes. situationally unaware.
4: I don't know why you're trying to make this something more than what it is. It's literally just if a girl can't defend, you—it it's boring to date her. Well, yeah. This is what Rick Carlisle said.
1: Actually, if you do think about exactly what Rick Carlisle said, I mean, think about it. If your shouty is always out there, never on the defensive, like you're out there and with public, say hypothetical, you're at the supermarket with her. You know, you're trying to pick out dinner for the night. Maybe you're whipping up some mac and cheese and pork chops. I don't really know what you'd be eating. That sounds kind of like a weird meal to me, but maybe that's what you like. So you're in there, you're copping your pork chops and mac and cheese, and then a you know a six seven dude tries to go on the offensive on her in the supermarket. If she can't play his defense, she's, he's taking your girl. He's, she no, can't Logan, play defense.
4: Logan, he is literally talking about on the basketball court, okay? Does she understand various coverages? Can she defend multiple positions?
1: Why would I ever be playing that big of a defensive <laughs> liability on the court, Carson?
4: Yes, thank you. Now you're getting It's not about the grocery store. It's not about anything other than in a game of basketball, how does she hold up against high-level competition defensively? Anyways. Sounds, answer the question. It sounds
1: man. like she can't hold her own, man.
4: No, it's just, bro, it's like putting Lou Will out there. Mm. What are you going to do? You can only be with Lou Will for so long.
1: Is she a crafty bucket, though? Does she get buckets?
4: I don't, I don't know. I mean, we have to assume that there's some sort of upside there. I mean, there's some redeeming quality, seriously. I'm sort of visualizing maybe a, a shifty shot creator, so, you know, some nice change in pace. Yeah, there's some pull-up shooting chops there, but... You have to think maybe if the IQ isn't there Mm -hmm. defensively, Mm -hmm. offensively, can she be a bit of a ball stopper? Is she selfish? Mm. Ultimately, that's another question because that doesn't apply to the Pacers. They play beautiful, beautiful Mm -hmm. team offense, but they can't defend.
1: He's right. You know, There's a balance here, and if it just outweighs if she's that big of a defensive liability, you can't put her out there on the court. I mean, Rick's right. The Pacers are never going to be a serious team if they can't play defense. There's not really a... Is there a good defender on the Pacers? Like, I know most people... Aaron
4: Neesmith.
1: I have come around to Aaron Neesmith. I feel really poorly. We did a podcast probably about my a month dog. or a month and a half ago, and we were talking about the Indiana Pacers, and I went, oh, yeah, Tyrese Halliburton's sick. Oh, yeah, Obi Toppin's sick. And then I was like, Aaron Neesmith is there. And I, yeah, I, felt, I love Aaron Neesmith. I felt really Aaron bad e. Smith about
4: that. was, like, my favorite high-floor guy in the 2020 draft. I loved him. And then I started to wonder did I love him too much? No, I loved him the right amount.
1: He's a he's a good defender. He's a really good shooter. Yeah, Neesmith's probably the only guy. Maybe Bruce Brown, too, you know, as point of attack guys. But uh, Miles Turner is not a good interior defender. You know, I mean, he can block shots, but when he goes up against really good interior big men, you know, he's not a stopper. Tyrese Halliburton is an absolute turnstile on the defensive end. You understand. What Rick Carlisle is saying, the Indiana Pacers will never win anything serious until they can clamp up on that end. I mean, if you're running a track meet, it's like you're, what was it, the 93 Nuggets Carson?
4: uh, The early 90s Nuggets under Paul Westhead generally, yeah. And also the uh, 80s Nuggets. They just play with crazy, crazy
1: pace. Yeah, you know, you're full go all the time, getting buckets. When it comes playoff time, man, you have to be able to get stops. You have to be able to stop runs. You have to stifle the other team, and Indiana, if they crack the postseason party, they're not going to be able to stop anybody. Um, Yeah, I I I wholeheartedly agree with Carlisle. I don't know if I'd ever get bored of the pretty girl, but it sounds like Carlisle's pretty fed up, man.
4: I do actually think that Miles Turner is still a good defensive big. Uh, He is quite a good rim protector. I think that his opponent field goal differential there is really good. He holds people 8% below average around the rim. The Pacers defense is much better with him on the floor. About 6 points per in our possessions. He's not an elite defensive big, but he is a good one. Their problems to me are much more about the point of attack and their overall effort. And Turner isn't the sort of big who can single-handedly transform a team defense and cover up for all of those issues. So, he is right that they are ultimately not contenders while they are 26th in defensive rating. That's a trend that is very clear throughout NBA history. The Nuggets were 15th in defensive rating last year. That was the lowest we've seen in any regular season from a champ since the 01 Lakers who were the defending champions. And I think that there was a year, 2018 I want to say it was, where the Warriors were outside of top 10 in defensive rating but they were just outside and that was as a defending champion. Like if you get a little bit of that malaise and you're not giving full effort every night because you've already climbed the mountain, that's one thing. The Pacers just don't defend. And I do like the move to start Neesmith because, I mean, he brings you all the shooting of anybody out there, basically, an elite shooter. And then you get a little bit more athleticism and you do get probably the best perimeter defense on the team, but they're just not constructed to contend right now they've built a team that is actually really fun i could never call the pacers boring i understand if you get tired of losing games where you don't stop anybody and as a coach your goal isn't to have the best offensive rating ever it's to win the title and the pacers aren't in a position to do that but their team construction is that of one that wants to run and shoot the hell out of the ball and outscore people they don't have personnel to make big physical teams uncomfortable They just don't. I mean, we saw it versus the Lakers, right? That's a setting where everybody should be dialed in in the in-season tournament, and they just could offer no resistance to that front line. It's a matter of personnel limitations, and it's a matter of the overall mindset of this team. They don't rebound well. They're 24th in rebound rate, and they have no secondary rim protection. There's nobody outside of Miles Turner who has any sort of presence on the interior as a help defender, as a rebounder, and ultimately correcting that is going to be about adding better two-way wings and upgrading the four spot from OB Toppin, who has always, always, always been a defensive liability, not quick laterally, not big for his size, not long. I mean, he has the vertical athleticism, but he doesn't really do a ton with that defensively. He's averaging like four boards a game this year, so he's not having an impact there. That's going to be the next step. It's saying, okay, great. We've realized that if we put shooting around Tyrese Halliburton, that's it. We can have the best offense in basketball. And if we play fast and allow him to do what he does in transition, that is scary. So now it's trying to find guys who, all right, yes, can shoot, but can also defend and therefore compliment him and can cover up a bit for his deficiencies. The Pacers aren't there yet, but that is not an impossible place to get. And ultimately having any young player who can carry you like this is rare. It is worthy of celebration. The Pacers are ahead of schedule. They're still awesome. I think Rick was maybe a little bit negative with his outlook here, but I get what he's saying ultimately, right? I mean, if Shorty can't handle a switch in the post, like, you just can't really do anything with that. You can't. You can't. You can't ultimately unplayable in a big-time situation.
2: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick
0: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
4: or wherever you get your podcasts. Last thing real quick here, Logan. We talked a good bit about the Suns recently and their struggles. We've actually seen the big three healthy for a couple games now. And they've won four straight, but only two of those had Beal, Booker, and KD against Charlotte and then against Orlando. What have been your quick takeaways from seeing that big three out there together?
1: They've looked better. Uh, Obviously, that's what we anticipated. I do want to preface this, Carson. I think you made a fantastic point on Jason's show, uh, the last one that we did. Just about the overall injury concerns of this team, Kevin Durant, uh... I believe missed the Portland game with a hamstring injury. And, you know, I mean, regular season is one thing where I think that these guys are going to take their healthy amount of load management games where KD needs a rest or Beal needs a rest or Book needs a rest. And on the whole, it shouldn't matter. Two of these guys should be able to carry you through a decent amount of games. You know, two stars like this offensively. Mm-hmm. It, it. You made a fantastic point though on the show. I mean, it just has to be in the back of your mind Anytime we talk about the Suns or anytime we hypothesize a playoff run for Phoenix, injuries have to be on the back of your mind. These are three injury-prone guys and two very injury-prone in KD and Bradley Beal. But we have seen them healthy for a few games. You know, it's looked good, and I just have felt a ton of more space for these guys to create when they are on the court. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the biggest issues with these role players that were there was that You know, defenses didn't have to respect guys on the weak side or guys on the corners or on the sides. They could play a ton of help defense and just collapse on these stars and force them to make a lot of tough shots. That hasn't been the case with the big three. There's been a ton of more room to operate in isolation, out of pick and rolls. You know, duh, we should expect. You just can't help off a Beeler book or they're going to make you pay. And when they have helped off, these stars have made them pay. So the offense has looked better. I do think there are some concerning analytics when it comes to phoenix and it's exactly what we've talked about the reliance on the mid-range jump shots and long mid-range mm-hmm. jumpers in general against orlando 17 percent of their shots came from the long mid-range uh these percentiles are based on every game played this season so it is based on an average nba game that's the 98th percentile i mean they just shoot way more mid-range jumpers yeah. than everybody else 41 percent of their shots overall came in the mid-range against orlando that's in the 90th percentile their other healthy game against charlotte well 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 what did we get here 18 percent of their shots came in the long rid- uh long mid-range 97th percentile uh overall mid-range jumpers were just a little down that's just still my one concern with this team is defensively can they reach a high enough ceiling like the indiana pacers offensively can they be dynamic enough to really get their offense cooking because we saw d book and kd Against the Denver Nuggets, they were able to steal two games. I think they'll be Mm -hmm. competitive in a series regardless because of what these guys are able to do offensively. Is their offense going to be dynamic enough and seamless enough and creative enough for them to win an entire series? I don't know. I can't say that yet. Are they going to be healthy enough? You know, Carson, I feel like we're going to talk about the Suns probably 10 to 20 more times this season because they are a very intriguing team with a lot of stars and they're supposed to be a contender. I don't know if I'm going to be able to come with you with a different take about Phoenix until we get into the playoffs. Mm -hmm. Injuries are going to be a concern. Offensive dynamism is going to be a concern. And defense is going to be a concern unless they make a move at the deadline.
4: Yeah, I agree with a lot of the same overarching concerns as what we've talked about before. And seeing the big three isn't really different from what I expected. They hold defenses to account. You can't load up on Book and KD in the same way. And that's been an issue for them in the clutch. It shouldn't be when Bradley Beal is out there because they just have three dudes who can really break you down off the dribble and put the defense into rotation and punish you if you do overhelp on somebody else, not just with straight up spot up shooting like a Grayson Allen but with real closeout attacking with real off the dribble creation and playmaking and I thought that Bradley Beal was getting some nice penetration in this game and creating good shots and he adds that dimension with his quickness even more so than booking KD I would say it's, their offense looks better and with Beal out there it's a top 10 offense which it hasn't been up to this point in the year but a lot of what you talk about they're still just not as prone to explosions because they don't take a lot of shots at the rim and they don't take many threes. And that's even more the case when all three of them are out there because they prefer to attack from that intermediate area, all of them. So like that Magic game, they're playing really good offense. They end with 112 points, which is just okay in today's NBA because they're 8 of 27 from three. That's an off-shooting night. But more than anything, that's a very small number of threes to be taking in an average NBA game in 2024. So... That's just going to limit the sort of overwhelming ceiling that they have because they don't have that dominant physical force because they don't have those flamethrower performances from deep, but they still have tons of shot creation. They have playmaking here and just having three dudes of this caliber is going to put stress on any defense. It's going to make you a good offense. I'm just not convinced that that compensates for their other more significant issues, which is... They're not going to be able to defend at an average level, in my opinion. Their role players are still limited. Now, it's nice having Beal out there because it slides everybody's responsibilities down a peg. But still, I mean, you've constructed a defense that that has a lot of liabilities out there. And I don't feel very good about your depth. And that's going to limit how scary they can be to me. But they look better. I think it's encouraging for Suns fans, at least, that they're all out there. And it's fun. And I really like these guys. Like, I hope that they succeed. I think that they are such skilled basketball players that it's just a joy to watch them all go to work on the same team i just worry about the construction and the long-term ceiling there all right logan that's gonna do it for us here today hope you all enjoyed hope you are having a great new year so far logan any resolutions from you you got any resolutions to share with the people
1: hair more hair (laughs) something like that yeah
4: Electro. <laughs> <laughs> ha-
1: yeah, go to the yeah go to the TikTok if you're trying to get a peek at my hair, man. Yeah, again,
4: as I said last time, open to rave reviews. A bit more detailed reviews this time around than the they were the not rave. Blush. They were not rave. I thought there was a great deal of enthusiasm there, a great deal of passion. Marty,
1: we have to get back to 19. What was it? 1988. Whatever. It, it is, is alive,
4: alive. A haircut. <laughs>
1: yeah somebody Don't said i stuck on a, a
4: haircut
1: somebody said i stuck a fork in an electrical socket that was pretty good
4: <laughs> yeah there were a lot of good comments on that one all right appreciate you guys for all of that and for listening of course and enjoying you can check us out on tiktok at NerdSesh and instagram same handle and twitter at nerd underscore sesh to see all of our trivia content to stay tuned in to the show get clips get notified when we make a show all that you can also watch all of our full episodes on youtube with video and you can see breakout clips there, video breakdowns of players on the Nerd Sesh YouTube page. You can listen to the show across audio platforms. You can check us out on Discord or join our Discord, I should say. Talk NBA, NFL with us. Become part of our community. That link is at the Linktree across our social media bios. And you can check out our merch if you want at thevolume.com. We've got hats, we've got shirts, we've got hoodies, we've got flags. All of that is also at our link tree and thevolume.com. So with that... Appreciate you guys. I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash.